Hi, I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to this episode of Military History Inside Out. Today I speak with Richard Flint, who has co-authored a book on the various individuals involved in the Coronado expedition of the 16th century, uh, and that involved um, Spanish traders, some Spanish military uh, individuals, and a large amount of um, native Mexican warriors as well. So, thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Richard Flint, co-author of A Most Splendid Company, The Coronado Expedition in Global Perspective. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. So first, uh, tell me, how did you get into um, studying this subject and writing a book on it? Well, I'll say that, first of all, this is our eighth book on, on this subject, so we've been at it a long time. It began in 1980. Uh, we were uh, doing a lot of freelance writing at the time on various subjects, and one of those uh, outlets that we were using was New Mexico Magazine. And they had a little uh, column, regular column in New Mexico Magazine called Asias Nuevo Mexico. And it was very little brief uh, text, a couple of paragraphs usually, about something interesting about New Mexico. And uh, we had done several of those. And uh, we came across a, uh, a republication of an 1896 book bookmobile we frequented, and it was a uh, series of English translations of, I think it was six documents from the Coronado Expedition, and uh, we decided to check it out and, and uh, see if there was anything in there that might be of interest, and um, one of the documents that was included in there was the uh, narrative of uh, Pedro de Castaneda de Nájera, who was probably the most voluminous uh, chronicler of the Cornell expedition. Um, and so we read his narrative and included in that narrative um, there was a footnote by the by the editor and translator and it described a bridge that had been built across the across a river by the Coronado Expedition, mm -hmm. the, it turned out the only bridge that the expedition ever built uh, in its 4,000-mile journey, despite the fact that they crossed many very large rivers, and rivers much larger than the river that was evidently bridged. Mm. And that raised a real quite a number of questions. Uh, we lived, at the time, uh, only four miles from that river, and only a few more miles from the location where people were speculating that the bridge had been built. Yeah. So it was backyard, so to speak. And uh, we thought, well, that might make a neat, uh, a neat short piece for New Mexico Magazine. Mm -hmm. And did we know it, that changed our lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that little quest, trying to find out about that bridge, you know, just mushroomed into other questions, other questions, other questions, and has kept us going for 40 years, roughly. Um, not, of course, all on the subject of the of the bridge at all, mm -hmm. but other aspects of the, of the Cornell Expedition and related things during the 16th century. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so since you've written a number of books on the subject, um, can you tell me about what this book focuses on and and how it differs from from your previous works? Sure. Um, The the other books have... uh, There are two different... There are two classes of the other books. Uh, One are our own um, individual productions, and one is... Uh, edited volumes of uh, papers that were presented at conferences that we hosted. Mm-hmm. So we had three of those. So there there were then uh, four others that were our own production. And they concentrated very heavily on the uh, uh, well, first finding and then uh, transcribing and translating uh, 16th century Spanish manuscript documents dealing with the Coronado expedition. They tended to be narrative documents, you know, actually sort of telling a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we had done, well, a fair amount of that. I mean, uh, probably uh, all, of the, all of the known uh, and you previously used uh, documents, ones that had been used in studying the expedition, we had retranslated. And... Uh, because we had found many uh, difficulties, errors, and uh, inconsistencies with earlier earlier translations. So that had been our previous work, mm-hmm. uh, which had already led to a number of uh, revelations, sort of, about the expedition. Uh, but we, one of the things that was missing, we felt like, was the fact that we were not getting a lot of information about the actual people who participated in the expedition and we thought that if we could get a handle on as much information as we could find about the actual members of the expedition that may shed a different kind of light on the expedition so that was our project and it started uh, 15 years ago Uh, we started going to uh, archives uh, mostly in Spain and Mexico uh, a couple in the United States but uh, mostly Spain and Mexico, uh, looking for information of various kinds, things like birth dates, death dates, occupation, uh, education, training, experience, uh, relationship with other people, all those kinds of things, sort of social information about members of the Coronado expedition. And we had started with a list that had uh, of of individuals known to have been on the expedition, uh, that list grew over the 15 years. Another 100 individuals were added hmm. during the we came on them in other documents. Hmm. Uh, some had been found earlier by other by other researchers, but uh, the bulk of them were ones that turned up in in our work. Uh, so we added first we added people to the known roster of individuals who were on the expedition, Mm -hmm. uh, developed uh, information about different groups of people who were on the expedition, most notably uh, Indians of central and western Mexico, Mm -hmm. who by far made up the great bulk of the Coronado expedition. They were two-thirds to three-fourths of all the people were actually Indians from central and western Mexico mostly Nahuatl speakers. 
uh, but from various different communities. But before we started this project 15 years ago, uh, only only a handful um, were known, and very, very little was known about them. Um, in the course of our work now in this 15 years, we have uh, been able to identify, uh, I think it's a total of uh, 15, uh, which is may not sound like very many, but when you start with four, mm-hmm. uh, 15 is a big row. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, but they were important people because they were leaders of um, groups of warriors who were coming from uh, various communities, various native communities in central and western Mexico to participate in the Coronado expedition. They all said of their own free will, uh, whether that's literally true, uh, we can't say, but it does seem like they certainly had their own motives going and they were not related to the to the Spanish motives uh, so they had their own reasons to go uh, one of which was that uh, the viceroy of Nueva España Don Antonio de Mendoza who was basically the organizer and the driving force behind the Coronado expedition uh, offered to individual native communities incentives, financial incentives to participate in the, in the expedition. Now, most often it was the reduction in tribute rates mm-hmm. because these groups were required to pay tribute to the Spanish crown or to their representatives. And, and um, they would arrange, so the, the uh, viceroy's representatives would arrange for future reduction of tribute obligations from these native communities. And the communities would send groups of people. They, they did not go as individuals. They came as their own, um, basically, indigenous military units with their own leaders. Uh, they were, in many ways, independent of the, of, of the Spanish expedition. And hmm. although we can't show a lot of evidence, there is some evidence to suggest that probably more than we can see, um, those native contingents were uh, freelancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they would go off on their own and do things that were of importance to them you know, without without the knowledge or approval of uh, the Spanish leaders of the expedition. Um, and, and, and that's an interesting thing to know. I mean, I think that that uh, means that you have really at least two sort of more or less independent groups operating in parallel, uh, one that's European and one that's Native American. Uh, And sometimes in sort of lockstep and other times really very independent. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. Um, What's the date range of the expedition again, just for listeners? Sure. Uh, The expedition began uh, in... Late 1539, and it ended, it concluded in uh, September of 1542. So it was a little less than three years long, but this is only 20 years after the conquest of Mexico. So this is, uh, Europeans have not been in this part of the world very long. Um, Despite that, they are moving out in various directions and this is one of those 
one of those instances. So you mentioned when we emailed that uh, the expedition wasn't as military as military focused as people might have thought in the past. Right. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, one of the sort of uh, as we have gone, we had no idea when we started studying this uh, how how this would all turn out. I mean, forty years ago, uh, we we were very accepting of the current uh, scholarly opinions. Of, of that day, and they were mostly derived from the uh, 1930s and 40s. Hmm. The great scholar uh, Herbert Bolton at the University of California, Berkeley, was considered to be the authority on the Coronado Expedition for several generations, and he had written a book published in 1949 called Coronado Night of Pueblos and Plains. And that sort of established uh, in the popular uh, vision, and, and in many ways, among many scholars also, that the uh, that the Coronado expedition, like many of the other Spanish expeditions that happened in the 16th century, was basically a group of um, armor-clad knights on horseback sent by the King of Spain to look for gold. That was sort of the, the capsule version of what the Coronado Expedition was about. Well, over the years, we found out that none of those things are true. Mm. Uh, they, they had lots of horses with them, for instance, but almost everybody walked because it was much more important to carry the supplies and food than it was to have people riding. Mm. So, <laughs> the, you know, the practicalities really dictated that you put the stuff that has to be transported on horseback and mule back. They had many, many mules also, mm-hmm. uh, but not not people. I mean, they could walk, uh, and everybody did pretty much. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, there was on the Coronado expedition, uh, for instance, just as an example, we have a total of somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,800 people a very large group of people. Like I say, two-thirds to three-fourths of those were Indians, natives of central Mexico and western Mexico. Mm. But the remainder, the European component, uh, had very little in the way of uh, European metal armor. Uh, they had, uh, there were a few people, uh, maybe six, uh, who had anything resembling a suit of armor. Uh, there were, uh, for instance, I think 40, as we, as we can document anyway, 40 helmets among uh, almost 400 uh, Europeans, European men, so-called men-at-arms, mm-hmm. uh, who were on the expedition. So 40 European-style metal helmets, um, Stray pieces of chain mail, um, plate armor uh, of various pieces. People would ordinarily have just a piece, like a glove hmm. or uh, a gorget, uh, but not, nothing like a like a suit of of, of, of armor. Hmm. So they have pieces, stray pieces, and uh, that's partly because it was not sent by the king of Spain. It was not financed in any way by the King of Spain. It was a privately financed enterprise, as were most of the 
with 16th century Spanish-led expeditions in the New World. There were a few that were exception, but the vast majority of them were privately financed, as the Coronado expedition was. And they were, they were privately financed because they had private goals. They were not out to achieve some state-sponsored goal uh, in performing this, um, say, geographical feat. Mm. Uh, they were actually out to make money. And uh, so people, had, everyone, all the Europeans who participated in the expedition basically had to uh, pay to go. They had to outfit themselves um, and any of the any of their companions that they might be bringing along. Many people um, who were of um, reasonably high status. This would be what we might call middle class or higher in those days in Spain. Uh, routinely had slaves and servants, for instance. Mm-hmm. And we had quite a number of slaves and servants who were on the Coronado expedition. Well, those all had, they had to be supplied by the people who were bringing them. So, anybody mm-hmm. uh, who, who brought the, for instance, Francisco Vasquez and Coronado, we, who was the titular leader of the expedition, uh, he had a number of, um, black African slaves, um, including one, we know now, one entire slave family, hmm. two parents and two children, uh, who made up part of his entourage. Uh, and he has also a number of, um, who were called in those days by the Spanish, criados. Uh, we would probably translate that generally as servants, uh, but oftentimes they were related uh, by blood in, hmm. or marriage, uh, so not quite servants as we would ordinarily think of, uh, but nevertheless in that kind of status where they were at the beck and call of, of their uh, more senior or more prestigious relative. Hmm. Uh, so there were uh, everyone would have to pay for any entourage, you might call it, uh, that an individual's bringing, uh, supply them with uh, food, clothing, transportation, meaning general horses and mules, uh, things like that, uh, tents, uh, which they camped in, very large pavilion-type tents, look very medieval. Look very medieval. Uh, so it's what we see, what we have seen over the years, come to see over the years, really, is that the picture that Herbert Bolton and his contemporaries were portraying, and therefore one that became very firmly established in sort of the American popular consciousness of these ironclad Spanish knights uh, looking for gold, uh, just wasn't true. I mean, it, there were elements that were close to the truth. In other words, we could say that, well, not literally were they seeking gold, they were seeking profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were see- seeking wealth in a way, but none of the people who were on the Coronado expedition during its entire almost three years of, of travel uh, ever looked for gold. Uh, we have no evidence of that. They took no equipment. They had no kinds of testing equipment, no crucibles for you know, uh, assaying, um, or to see if it was worth worth uh, mining, 
nothing, nothing like it. No mining equipment, no uh, picks, no uh, digging bars, uh, you know, just, just nothing. Because they were looking for ready-made goods that they could purchase, basically. And uh, one of the... Uh, I, feel free to interrupt, because uh, I will go on and on. <laughs> so I, I do have one question. Um, I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that three-quarters of the expedition, basically these Spaniards and their their servants were surrounded by, um, it sounds like armed Mexican, native Mexican warriors. Yes. It seems on one hand, that's a very trusting kind of situation. And it also makes me wonder, so the, the conflicts they did, um, end up dealing with while traveling. I wonder how much was, um, because of the native warriors, maybe doing their own conquering or, or fighting or whatever. Boy, that, that, that is just such a, a good question. We have thought about this often, about how the um, the sort of trajectory of the expedition may have been radically affected, at least at times, by the motives of the um, Indian allies, uh, what they wanted and what they were after. Because um, people have asked us over and over again over the years, why would they go? You know, why would these all these Indians from central Mexico, why would they agree to go on an expedition like this? And I think there are a number of answers, but I think the probably the most um, powerful uh, motivation was that when the Spanish conquest happened in central and western Mexico, a lid was put on uh, indigenous warfare. And for young men, in fact, for men of any age, really, uh, in the Nama-speaking world of that time, advancement happened only by demonstrating prowess as a warrior. There were a couple of other ways. There were some religious um, personages who had roles in their community, but they were far fewer than warriors. So. If you wanted to become more prominent in your community, uh, if you wanted to increase your status, sometimes that meant, for instance, being able to marry or being able to marry appropriately. Uh, you would you would have to follow the requirements of the community of what you had to do to do that. And one of the things that it involved was capturing prisoners. Hmm. And capturing prisoners in one-on-one -on -one combat. They didn't like massed combat, um, although they would fight close together. It was really one person against one person, and the goal was to be fighting and be able to best someone who was were equal or slightly better in status, uh, and but and best meant to capture alive hmm. that person take them back to your home community and that person, that prisoner, would live in your, the warrior's family sometimes for years uh, while he was uh, sort of groomed, uh, treated amazingly well, uh, giving, given the best kind of clothing, the best food, uh, but basically being trained to be sacrificed. Hmm. Uh, and at some point, 
usually it wasn't many years, but it could easily be a year or more before the actual sacrifice would happen. But this was part of the sort of military, religious aspect of um, Nahua life in the 16th century before Spaniards arrived. So they were continuing this tradition and uh, what happened was, you know, in, in effect, the Spanish says, no, you can't fight here where we've already taken control. You can't do that. But if you want to come with us, mm. you know, you guys can fight all you want if you do it sort of on our behalf. Mm-hmm. You know? So this became a real, it's, uh, it's even related to um, the incredible uh, record of volunteer, volunteering even in the American military, by Native Americans, mm-hmm. in in even in recent decades, mm-hmm. uh, and because you, you go to a, a Native American home, and usually there will be many many photos of young men in military uniforms mm-hmm. uh, demonstrating their uh, participation in one or the other of the armed forces. Mm-hmm. And this is really a matter of pride and. Also, it still feeds the issue of being a warrior. Mm-hmm. If, if that's important in your native community, uh, it allows that to happen. So, as you were um, discovering sort of new persons who were on the expedition or, or learned more about them, how did can you can you mention a few significant ways and how that changed your idea of the expedition? Sure. Um, let me, let me, in fact, let me uh, pick out one particular person. Uh, well, uh, let me get, first let me give you an idea about how we searched. Okay. Because that's sort of of interest, I think. Uh, we went to, I think, a total of, we used a, a total of, I think, 26 archives mm-hmm. in Mexico and Spain. Of course, they're not all of the same quality. Uh, they don't all have the same kind of budgeting. <laughs> you know, so they, they're, they're different levels of which, uh, at which they've been able to take care of and maintain the collections of documents that they have. Mm-hmm. The very best uh, are a couple of archives, the Archivo General de Indias in Sevilla, Spain, and the Ar- Archivo General de la Nación in Mexico City. Uh, those are state-of-the-art archives. They're on the level of any in the world. Um, So they have uh, lots of uh, digitization of documents, for instance, uh, so you can actually view documents on screen without having to actually risk uh, damaging paper documents, old paper documents anymore, or or at least in many cases. Uh, But many other archives are still absolutely uh, paper. Hmm. Yeah, hard copy is all, is all there is. Well, uh, for instance, at the Archivo General de Indias, the, what we call the AGI in the city in Spain, uh, during all the many years that it existed before there were computers, uh, they maintained very large books that would be, they were catalogs of the documents that they hold. Mm-hmm. Gigantic folio-sized pages and they would record each document and a document could be anything from like one sheet of paper 
to 2,000 sheets of paper, depending on you know, what, what it's about and what the purpose of the document was. But they would write a short description of the document and uh, give information about uh, at least the main people who were involved in whatever uh, process the document was recording. And those, so those were only in those very large books. So when we would have to, when we uh, were going to the uh, AGI originally, uh, there was no computerization, and they, um, you had to look at the these big books. You could go through the books and you could look, just read the entries and see, find perhaps something that might be of interest. Mm-hmm. Well, in the 1980s, the AGI entered into a cooperative agreement with IBM to digitize their entire document collection. Uh, it's something over 40 million documents. Mm-hmm. They've been working at that since then and are not finished yet, but lots has been done. And the first thing they did was to com- computerize those lists, those catalog lists, so that at a minimum uh, it became possible to word search those descriptions of the documents, mm-hmm. which made searching the collection at least minimally searching uh, a, a thousand times easier than it once was. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than having to actually look one by one by one by one at the documents, you could now uh, at least search the descriptions of the documents and decide if there were some that maybe you need thought were worthwhile to look at and request that those be brought to you physically to mm-hmm. spend your time looking at those. So that's um, how things began. Well, as as the uh, digitization of documents themselves have, has gone on, uh, they have the staff at the AGI has been expanding those descriptions making sure that they list first all the people that are mentioned in the documents or all the significant places that are mentioned in the document. So the catalog list, now digitized, grows and gets bigger and bigger, so there's more for you to be able to search. In addition to that, they produced um, JPEG uh, facsimile copies of many millions so far of the actual documents so that once you are have determined that you're interested in looking at a document you can actually call it up on screen mm-hmm. and at least relatively quickly look, look through the document well so we, since we had the list of people a list of people you call who we for sure had been on the expedition, we can check that list of names against that master catalog, that master digitized catalog, and therefore uh, identify documents that we might want to look at. But since this, the collection is so big, you know, 40 million documents, it, I mean, it cuts it down drastically, but it still is a lot. When you put a name in, especially if you put a name in that's a common name, right. and one one of those names that was on the that was on our list was a man named Francisco Rodriguez. Well, 
French, both of those names, both first and last name, are very common. Both Francisco and Rodriguez, and even that combination of Francisco Rodriguez, very common. We knew from other scholars' work that at the time of the Coronado expedition, there were at least 40 individuals in that part of Nueva España, essentially modern Mexico, uh, during the years when the uh, expedition was being organized and going on, who had that name. Wow. And, and we, we didn't, all we knew about this guy on, from on our list was that he was on our list. Mm-hmm. Anything about this Francisco Rodriguez other than his name. So, okay, you know, it's like, so when we, when Shirley and I would go to an archive, or we were at a, another sort of session, or archive we'd been to before, uh, we would have this list of, of, um, of uh, people who were on there, who we knew were on the expedition, and we had we put it in alphabetical order and split up the alphabet between us, between the two of us. One of us would take from A to M, and one would take from M to Z, and that's what we were doing this particular year. I think this was 2007, mm-hmm. and we were in Sevilla. We were working at the AGI, the Archivo General de Indias, and uh, we were there for three months. And we had been working already for the better part of two months, mm-hmm. uh, approaching the end of November. We'd been there since the beginning of October, uh, so every day we were taking new names. Sometimes not new names, just going to by the old names. If we can get through the documents with those names, um, but searching for documents digitally, um, and then requesting, if necessary, to have the physical hard copy documents brought to us so we could read them, and, or if we were lucky enough, we could call documents up on screen and read them that way. So we were doing that, and I had got. I was in the second half of the alphabet this particular time. And I got down to this Francisco Rodriguez. And I put that name in and up came 3,000 and something hits mm-hmm. of Francisco Rodriguez. And it's like, you know, your heart sort of sinks because it's like, you don't you know nothing about this guy. You don't know how to distinguish him from anybody else who has that name. And you've got 3,000 of them minimum coming up in this one archive and uh, we've sort of set ourselves this task. You know, we're gonna we're gonna try and find information about all these people. With just as much information as we can. Well, when you have three thousand hits like that, uh, we could spend all the rest of the time we were gonna be in C V on that one man. And without any assurance that we would even find him ever mm-hmm. at all. So we were able to shrink that number a little bit by making some assumptions about um, where maybe in the Western Hemisphere this person may have been before the expedition. We had, just by judging by what we knew about other members of the expedition. You know, where were they tending to come from? Uh, we didn't get too many who, who were coming from South America, for instance. Mm-hmm. Well, it happened, but not often. Um, um, so we, we could eliminate some of these hits that we were getting with the AGI. We could also 
minds constrict a little bit the t time frame that we were looking at. Uh, so we tried to squeeze it down to just a year or two before the expedition and a year or two after the expedition and see if we could limit it that way. So we, we know we're only looking at people who really were there in just the right time. Um, and um, by doing things like that, uh, I got the list of 3,000 and something down to 163. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's still a lot. Mm -hmm. I, still, I still could work a month or more, depending on what the documents were like. Um, but, and I really, I seriously had an argument with myself sitting there at that really wonderful, in a wonderful archive, and it's, it's completely comfortable, but except mentally, this is like, you know, head spinning kind of thing. It's like, you know, God, this is a gigantic job. And this is only one person. You know? <laughs> and, and so I had a, really had an argument with myself sitting there. Should I just pass this guy for the time being? We can go to somebody who has at least a more unusual name, that we have a better chance of maybe hitting the guy. You know, and I I'm going on and on like that, and I said, no. This is, this is, this is, we took on this job. Yeah. If, if anybody's going to do it, we've said we're going to do it, we should do it. So it needs to be done and we're going to do it. So, okay. Then I'll just, I have 163 documents that have been called up here that have been identified uh, as fitting sort of these restricted criteria. I'll just start asking for them. Well, the first two were already digitized, so I could call them up on screen. And I, I read them, through them fairly quickly. It only took me about an hour, I think, to see that neither of those two documents was, probably had anything to do with the person who was on the Coronado expedition. Hmm. So, now I'm down to number three. Number three was not digitized. Uh, so that meant that I had to request that staff from the AGI go to the to their very vast storage area and bring me they can't bring you just the single document they bring you a bundle hmm. of documents which contains this document that has been identified by computer uh, and so I asked for that document it was uh, in a bundle they call them legajos um that was in the justicia section, which is, has to do with law and legal issues. Um, and so I requested this justicia number 202. And I asked, put in my paper request for this document. It took about an hour for them to make it together several requests and go at the same time, you know, get, get doc, retrieve documents. And it took about an hour for the document or the legajo that I had asked for to come. And it did. And it was a bundle uh, of documents uh, in excess of 2,000 sheets of paper. Mm -hmm. The particular document that I wanted to look at was the very first document in the group. But it was 500 pages uh, and okay, five hundred. Well, wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> uh, 
man named Francisco Rodriguez, the man whose name led me to this document. Uh, okay. Uh, what are the chances I'm going to find anything out about Francisco Rodriguez with Inez, his wife, writing? Well, could happen, could happen, so I better read this. Okay, so I'm going through the document, and it turns out she is, uh, has made a petition to the king of Spain asking that property that her husband had owned in encomienda, that would be the right to collect tribute on a native com- from a native community uh, in Mexico, uh, had been taken away from her son when her husband died. So she was asking now that really she should be given that encomienda back because it's a source of income. And uh, she should be given it because her son, to whom it had originally been given by her husband, had died at age eight. And the crown only allowed two generations to, from the passage of two generations of a right, of an encomienda right. Mm. So because the husband died, and then the son died, that's it. Uh, it reverts to the crown. So she was protesting. And as I read through, I was getting the same information over and over and over again, telling about her husband having died, not explaining how he died, but that he did die. Uh, not too many years before, just two years before this was filed. And that her son had been given the encomienda and that she was asking for it. And she was giving reasons why she deserved it, why now, she had done things that were of benefit to the king of Spain, mm-hmm. and that she should be provided that. Well, okay, but it was giving me no details about Francisco Rodriguez, uh, and I kept reading through. Fortunately, there was lots of repetitive information. She called witnesses. They were all asked the very similar questions. Their responses were very similar, so there was nothing very new. I, I, I had to keep looking because you can never tell when somebody's going to say something different. So, but it was relatively fast going through. And uh, by the, uh, almost the end of the day, uh, I was down to the last 37 pages in this stack of 500 or so pages. And it was different than all the rest. Uh, It was uh, 37 pages they had been stitched together. So they were a unit. And, okay, open that up. And this is by a completely different person. A man named Guido de Lanasares. Who is Guido de Lanasares? I am so far afield now. <laughs> but, you know, I'm trying to get to Francisco Rodriguez. And I got to Inez Alvarez, and now she led me to this Guido Lavasaris. Right? You know, oh, this seems almost. But he explains that he is now the second husband of Inez Alvarez, and that he is submitting a proof of service to the King of Spain about things that he has done that he thinks mean that his wife, Inez, ought to be given the, that encomienda back. 
explained. He explained that he had supported many members of the Coronado expedition mm. to go, to travel to Cibola. And uh, he had loaned money to people to go, to buy equipment. He personally bought things, saddles. He bought, he's talked about buying silk for banners. Uh, hmm. A number of things that he then either gave or loaned to people who were going to go on the expedition. Uh, and the total was a considerable amount. It came to something like 20,000 pesos. Um, that would be, if we, if you consider that an ordinary laborer in those days in Spain would make, could make about a hundred pesos a year. Hmm. 20,000 pesos is a, not maybe the biggest fortune, but it's a fortune. Hmm. So he spent that kind of money giving it and loaning it to people who went on the Coronado expedition, including the leader of the expedition himself, Francisco Vasas de Coronado, who he, to whom he loaned 2,000 pesos. Hmm. This document was being prepared now in 1550, seven years after the end of the Coronado expedition, and he was complaining that he had not been repaid by almost anybody <laughs> he hadn't gotten any of it so but the important thing here is that this was a private funder of the Coronado expedition he himself did not participate in it mm-hmm. but he paid for other people to help other people to go on the expedition and he ended up sending a uh, an agent of his own on the expedition, a man named Cristobal Gallego. And uh, as we subsequently learned, because this was a, a very interesting piece of information, we didn't know of any but three investors in the expedition at that point. So he was a brand new uh, private investor putting money into the Coronado expedition. That was a brand new piece of information. What was even more interesting was the fact that he, Guido de Lavazares, was of Genoese extraction of a family of uh, international traders, Hmm. originally from Genoa, but his father had moved to Sevilla in Spain and established a branch of the family company there because the trade with the Indies was beginning and he became a trader to the Indies and this was now the son Guido was the son of that man and he had moved from Sevilla to Mexico City Hmm. to be in charge of the family's business in Mexico City their principal work was importation of books They were merchants in books, which were a luxury commodity at the time. Mm -hmm. There was time no printing press in the world. So you had to buy pre-printed books. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were all coming from Europe. And he was an importer of books, basically. 
and other things, it turned out. Mm-hmm. But he described himself as primarily a important. So, um, are all these kind of details, do you find that in the book? Did you write this into the book? This particular person, yes, because this particular person became a key figure in sort of giving us an entirely different focus, not entirely, but a majorly different focus on the Coronado expedition. Mm-hmm. Because he, here is an international trader who is sending an agent on the Cornell expedition and paying to support other people to go on the expedition, perhaps loaning the money to make purchases for him, for Guido, should they get where everybody expected them to go, mm-hmm. which was China. Mm. That's where they were all expected they were headed. They were going to walk to China. They thought it was that close. Mm. And uh, that they could simply sort of walk around the uh, Pacific Rim, in effect, what we know now is the Pacific Rim, mm-hmm. and, and have it, it would be much, much shorter than we know it is, mm-hmm. and they would soon be in China. There had been a number of um, stories and information provided by Native uh, people, Indians, mm-hmm. uh, throughout the Americas, uh, about this area that they were headed toward which seemed to indicate that it might be part of Asia. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was still the, uh, the predominant view in Europe, that what we know as the Americas, mm-hmm. uh, they still didn't know it was a separate continent. Uh, not, not, in, not in the 1530s, and in fact, not until much longer, but uh, certainly in the 1530s they didn't know that. So they thought it was all one landmass. Mm-hmm. Uh, stretching for all the way from Tierra del Fuego all the way through South America and North America to what we know as Asia, China and Southeast Asia and the whole, whole bit. So that's where they thought they were going and because um, the most valuable commodities of the day in Europe were all from the Orient. Mm-hmm. Uh, porcelain, silk, Spices and dyes were the primary ones. Weight for weight, there was nothing in the world more valuable than these items. And that's what the Coronado Expedition and others like it, but especially the Coronado Expedition, was really after. Rather than saying they were looking for gold, no, they were in fact, if they could find silk, that, that would be, that would be the holy grail, in effect. Because it was just so valuable. So are all the important, are, are there any documents that are written in, uh, not in Spanish that would be, uh, that would, were useful or maybe might be useful that, that are out there? Yes, uh, there, there could be. And then, I mean, there are. Um, for instance, because um, the Coronado Expedition and many other efforts like that were, we think of it as Spanish, and truly uh, the majority of the European members of the expedition were from the Iberian Peninsula, um, meaning what we would think of as Spanish today and Portuguese. Uh, but there were many people from all over Europe who participated in the Coronado expedition. 
from Italy, from Greece, from France, from England, from Scotland. We have a man from Crete. Uh, they really work from Germany. Uh, they really work from all over all over Europe. Mm-hmm. So it was a multicultural and multilingual uh, expedition in many ways. And as a result, there were lots of contacts from people on the Coronado expedition to people in all over Europe, hmm. uh, including, as a matter of fact, um, the viceroy in Mexico City, Don Antonio de Mendoza, who was really the inspiration of the expedition. Uh, his brother, one of his brothers at the time, was the Spanish king's ambassador to Venice. And he was in constant communication with uh, Italians in Venice. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are, for instance, Italian documents. There's a whole group of small, but a, a group of documents. That the Spanish version isn't known to exist anymore, mm-hmm. but an Italian version exists precisely because of this connection. In other words, it, the information is con- conveyed from Mexico to Venice, to Spaniards, mm-hmm. and from them to interested people in Venice who were so interested that they had them uh, translated into Italian. Mm-hmm. So we have, so there, for instance, that is one example. Uh, another pertinent example is that because there are, uh, there were uh, this large number of Indians from Central and West Mexico, there are documents written in the native languages, mm-hmm. written, written only because they were um, they were written down um, eventually because of being alphabetized by Spanish or European priests who gave alphabetic characters to those native languages. They didn't have um, alphabets. They wrote with glyphic symbols. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, after after the colonization had begun and Spanish priests were proliferating and spreading over the area that had been taken control of by Spaniards, uh, many natives then learned to write their own native languages in those alphabetical versions done by priests. So there are there are native language documents, therefore, that contain information that is about the Coronado expedition. And so I don't know if that's exactly the kind of thing you're thinking of, but it, it certainly is in that category. So did the the native warriors were they able to bring back any prisoners, you know, that maybe they hoped to do so, you know? Hmm. 
now, we know that some did not do that. And because the indigenous groups uh, seem to have had much, a much freer hand than the European members of the expedition, we think it's quite possible, although we don't have any record of prisoners returning to Mexico with those Indian allies. But we would not be at all surprised, since that was, would be, have been an important part of the taking of those captives. Uh, so we'd be surprised if they didn't, but we don't have solid proof that happened. Was there any part of the research that uh, maybe had an emotional impact on you, either negatively or positively? Yes. Uh, I can think of a number of examples, but I think the hardest day that I ever had in any archive in 40 years was in the process of doing this project. Hmm. What it was was I ran across a group of documents. This was in a a um, financial section of an archive uh, and what the there was a small series of documents that all dealt with the sale of slaves mm. and the hard thing about this particular document was that it was about one man his sale and the fact that on one single day he was sold four times to four different people and each time he was branded. Uh. So it was it was just terrific, horrific to read. It mm. was like I, I had to stop. I really had to I mean after I after I read that document I just had to I said, I can't do any more this morning. This is just this is just way too hard to, to even stomach. Um, and I did. I went back to our apartment. Hmm. I, I just couldn't take it. So, yeah, there had been, and that's not the only one, but that, that's the worst one that I felt. I mean, it was just, it was so good, the description of the, of him being, you know, set up and viewed and, hmm. uh, you know, sold and then branded in the face, no less, uh, with the initials of each new owner. Um, it, it was clear that this was a this was retribution for some some behavior. Yeah. This was being done to punish this this man. Mm. He this was getting him back, gave backing him for something we never know about. But it was just really hard to read. So, considering all the information that's still out there, how did you um, figure out where to stop your research and writing and, and publish? Because I'm sure there's more that can be published. That's right. That's right. And there, there, not only what is there more, but there are some uh, specific places that we didn't get to and that we had hoped to. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that finally it was diminishing returns. We were going to uh, archives that were less and less likely to produce a uh, significant amount of material. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't produce significant material. Mm -hmm. uh, they may well, but for instance, we had wanted to go to uh, the Peruvian National Archive in Lima because a, uh, a number of, not a big number, but uh, maybe as many as a dozen members of the Coronado expedition 
went to Peru afterwards and hmm. lived out the remainder of their lives there. So if they had recorded things while they had been in Peru, they would stay in Peru. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore, there could easily be information, for instance, there. Uh, the same is true of Bolivia. Uh, the same is true of Ecuador. Also, several Central American uh, countries, especially Guatemala, which was a, a going Spanish uh, province at the time of the Coronado expedition, and several, again, several former members of the Coronado expedition end up going to Guatemala. So this would that would be another one. There was there was a man who came from Cuba to go on the expedition, and he returned to Cuba after the expedition. His father was apparently an important official in Cuba. That means there could easily be documents uh, that that family prepared. So there again would be another another person. But these by comparison with archives like the AGI, where there are millions of documents and you can be pretty sure you're always going to find something, mm -hmm. uh, no, no matter how many times you have looked, uh, cases like the Cuban man, that's the only Cuban we know of, who went on the expedition. There might have been others, but it's only we know of. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for one guy, maybe, in that large archive. Right. So it, it ends up being, you know, do we do we make it? And it costs money to do this. You know, you've got, you've got to pay yourself there. You've got to, you know, get a rent an apartment. You've got to eat and you know, do all that for the length of time you're there. And not that it's not, it can be anyway, very enjoyable. And it's certainly exhilarating when you find things, when, you, when things turn up and, wow, never knew that. Uh, you know, when you, when you can say things like that to yourself, or we say them to each other since we're two and we are working side by side usually. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's like, yeah, I mean, uh, but is it worth trying to get the money to go to Cuba? Right. Well, it seemed like maybe not. And especially because we had accumulated a vast amount of information. We had, we had uh, at the end, well, if you call it the end, we, mm -hmm. we continue working. So, so it's like, it's like we're, we're not done with anything. But we're, we're, we're certainly not going to do another book like this. Uh, this kind of magnitude and scope, uh, I don't think that there's, there's not enough time left in life to do that. To do that. I don't think. Well, and because, you know, we're, we're early 70s. Uh, this was 15 years. Uh, really, you think maybe by 87 or so you're going to still be heavy energy to be doing this? I don't know. Uh, I don't think we'll assume that. But we'll do smaller things. We'll certainly, and we already are planning smaller things that are related to the Cornwall expedition. Um, but uh, at some point, it, beca it became it became obvious that we were the returns were getting less and less. Mm -hmm. And so, well, do we follow it to the bitter end? I don't think so. Right. I mean, that, that, would, that would, it would there would be no end. We would just run out of time. Period. Mm -hmm. And that would be the end. And well, we want to write up what we have. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you want to be able to reach, try to reach some conclusions about all this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that was that became then the the uh, what became the real challenge after accumulating all the information, trying to make sense of it. What does it? What does it in fact tell us? 
expedition. And I've just mentioned the one, well, I've mentioned a couple of things, but the one thing about the fact that it was privately financed and it was primarily a, um, designed to connect with Asian manufactured goods. That, that was really the, the point. And that was something that really came out of this 15 years of research. We'd had little inklings of similar kinds of things. We knew there were a lot of traders who were on the expedition, for instance, already. We knew that there were quite a few. Uh, we just didn't know the extent of what, what was going on. And uh, I think that also when it became clear to us that uh, the Coronado expedition, rather than being an isolated, uh, one-off uh, expedition, was really one of three that happened in close succession, one year after another, hmm. uh, all originating essentially from Mexico City, all sponsored and with the uh, planning of the Viceroy, Don Antonio de Mendoza, although acting as a private individual, he did not act as Viceroy, but paid his own money, a very large amount of money, to help support these three expeditions. So the Coronado one was the first one. Uh, it was a land expedition because that was the safest. Try to get to China by walking there. That was by far safer than going by anything on water. Mm-hmm. When you start doing that, your chances of survival just rise rapidly uh, or drop rapidly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, sec- the second of the three was what we know as the Cabrillo Voyage going up the west coast of North America, uh, got up um, a long ways up the California coast and returned and said that they had been close to the Spice Islands, uh, which they weren't, but <laughs> they, they, they thought they were close. Yeah. They were close. And then the third one, which was to just simply sail west from the west coast of what's now Mexico, sailing. Mm-hmm. West Acapulco and just head for Asia that way. Yeah. I mean, you're bound to hit it. It's just a long way, and uh, and uh, they they did get there, uh, but they couldn't get back. That's yeah. the, the problem of sailing west from the Americas to Asia. Yeah. The are with you going, and they're against you coming back. Hmm. So uh, they 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 tried to sail back but could not find the way. There, there are ways, and eventually they found the way, and that man, Guido de Lavasaris, was instrumental in, in eventually finding that route back hmm. uh, much later, 20 years later. Huh. So, so he eventually figured in finding out how to get to China and back uh, with a strictly Spanish route. Strictly in Spanish control, so you avoid all the middlemen. You know, hmm. just just Spaniards to worry about. Interesting. So uh, we're coming. We've come up on time. So I'll just ask you a couple more closing questions. Um, sure. Uh, so where can people um, keep track of maybe your research or you know what you've written on? Do you have social media or anything? A website? We what we the one thing that I would suggest at the moment is that we have a companion website to this new book. Mm-hmm. It is uh, operated, it was prepared and is operated collaboratively between ourselves and the main library at the University of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So 
there is a website that is uh, coronado.unm.edu will take you to that website. And what that website is, and this would be of particular value to anybody who is really serious at, say, wanting to research themselves, uh, either, either into the Coronado Expedition or to anything that was happening in, say, Mexico at about that same time, because we acquired lots of information beyond people who were on the Coronado Expedition because of all the duplicate names of all the, you know, so we acquired lots of information, thousands of pages of just notes and citations uh, to sources um, for people who were on the expedition, plus thousands of more pages of people who were in Mexico at the time, but we aren't able to say that they were or were not on this particular expedition. So for people who are serious researchers, this is a, uh, it's available free uh, for non-commercial use, um, and uh, it has just a wealth of information. It can be used for lots of different purposes. Uh, there are some neat maps on the site. There are photos. Uh, there are, like I say, notes and excerpts from documents. There are little praises of biographies of individuals who are on the expedition. Uh, all that kind of, of stuff. All right. So um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Well, I think that it's, it, even after, even after uh, all this time, well, almost 40 years now of work essentially on the Coronado Expedition, I think one of the major things we found out is how little we know. Hmm. You know <laughs> we've, we've found a lot of new information, and things have changed. The story has changed because of what we found out. But we still feel like there's more to know than we do know. So I think that's an important thing, and we we want others to know that, mm-hmm. that there's work to do for anyone who wants to do it. Yeah. It, it, it is there, and it's we have found it fascinating. I'm sure there are other people who can find uh, things about it fascinating, too. Yeah, for future researchers, yeah, or even current ones who are looking for a subject. That's right, right, current ones, or even just avocational, you know, people who just get a bug in their ear. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. it's just. I think one of the things that we find is that uh, we're, we sometimes are distressed at the sort of what we see as devaluation or uh, of history, mm-hmm. or it's, it's, it's decreasing importance. Uh, we feel like even even in universities, we see we see history departments shrinking, not mm-hmm. growing these days, uh, and uh, especially ones having to do with. Uh, the Hispanic world. Um, so, uh, if we can interest more people in delving into those subjects, so much the better. Uh, use, please use. Jump off from where we where we are. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for speaking with me. Absolutely. This podcast has been presented by War Scholar. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for more great interviews and military history information. Your visits help support this podcast. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast 
is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez War Scholar. That's Chris without an H, C-R-I-S. On Facebook under War Scholar. On YouTube under War Scholar 1945. And on Twitter under War Scholar. Thank you, and I hope you return to this podcast for more great military history.